Please turn with me to Acts chapter 19. As we continue our study in the book of Acts, we will be looking at verses 21 through 41, the, the end of, through the end of 19, dealing with this riot that's about to take place in the city of Ephesus. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would guide us through it. This been, has been stated by several this morning. There are many idols that we kneel before other than the one true God, and that is you. And so, Lord, we pray as you being the only powerful one, the one who is mighty, that you would help us in casting down our idols and turning our hearts, our minds to you. Open your word that we might be convicted of our sin and be led to the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we are nearing another important election in our country, if you listen to the news, they're all the greatest election to ever take place and all, you know, how that goes. But tempers on both sides of the aisle are flaring. Also, they want us to pretend that there are only two sides. So we have this new Supreme Court justice that has been uh, appointed, and you guys should be familiar with that. And whatever your opinion is of him, you have to admit that the approval process was a joke. It was made a mockery of the process of our Constitution and most just decency, really. I read several stories recently of a pro-life activist being attacked by pro-choice activists just for being there, just for being out on the street and protesting what activists do. And unless we get too self-righteous and think that only pro-choice activists are doing the attacking, pro-life activists have long been known for attacking the other side as well. Battle lines are being drawn all over the political landscape, just constantly and sadly, Many in churches have chosen their political ideologies over the foundations of their faith. Why is that? Why do people act out so outlandishly in these situations? Well, as we're going to see some outlandish acting in our text today, it's because the idols of their heart are under attack and they're coming to their defense. No matter what side they're on, and again, there are more than two sides, they have entrenched themselves, and I say they because I'm doing this too, we entrench ourselves around one or two issues that we call ours, and we make that particular issue our God, and we craft some little idol, and maybe not a physical thing, probably not, but at least in our minds, and now, since that God that we have created is no God at all and is utterly defenseless, we will fight tooth and nail for that God's virtues and truth. Thankfully, the creator of the world is not utterly defenseless. The God of the Bible sits in the heavens and as the nation rages, as the nations rage and as this nation rages, he laughs. Because he has set his king, the Lord Jesus, on his holy hill. And that hill is not Washington, D.C. In our text today, we'll see this very thing playing out. Except 
It's a few thousand years ago, and it's a place that's on the other side of the world, but there's, it's no less applicable to us today. And rather than a political ideology or any other god that we might craft, it's a false goddess that is being worshipped, an actual image of a thing that they thought was real, an actual silver idol. Lots of silver idols, to be exact. And when their goddess is threatened, the people of Ephesus react with a riot that's pretty spectacular to read about, actually. The people shouting the same thing over and over for two hours. In the midst of all of it, we have the people of God reacting and interacting, of course. And there's quite a bit for us to learn from here. And so as we consider the text today, I want to look at three main ideas. The attack on idols the defense of those idols, and then the deconstruction or destruction of our own idols. And so with that, let's look at the text. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 21. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 19, starting at 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in, the sim- in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, and she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pre-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause, and we can give to, justif- or we can give to the justif- justify this commotion. 
And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a few background notes here in this passage. The temple of Artemis is probably something that is known to most of you who You know, when I was a kid, I remember these books, and one of them was The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, and I read it just over and over because it was fascinating to me. The Temple of Artemis was considered one of those seven wonders of the ancient world. It was destroyed and rebuilt several times over a period of about five or six hundred years, and ultimately destroyed by Christians in around 400 A.D., And Christians then took it apart and used some of the stones to make some of their own buildings, and most notably the Hagia Sophia, which is pretty neat, I thought. I read quite a bit on that. Serves as a very interesting twist in our story that the Christians were the one that dismantled that temple. But it had the dimensions of about like a football field, Uh, really the size of a football field and about 100 feet tall, completely made of marble. One of the ancients that saw this temple, and he had saw several others of the ancient uh, things, like the the pyramids, which are still there, the only ones that are still there, and several of the other ones, he said this, But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marbles lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. So you can kind of get the idea of what they thought of their goddess. They built this giant structure to serve her. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt and have some of the symbols that are associated with her, like spears and bows and arrows and bears. I thought, oh, that was really cool. But the Ephesians had their own little version of Artemis that they had morphed into a goddess of fertility. And usually when that happens, it's not good that follows. And so it really didn't. Their representations of her would have included symbology that was appropriate for that title without going into detail. Large statues from that time have been preserved and even copied. And you can look it up. I'd encourage you to do so. It's interesting to read about. And it would not have been uncommon for her worshipers, especially in the city of Ephesus and other cities that were... Uh, very crucial to her worship at the time to have some sort of small replica of those statues in their homes, which is where our story takes place. It was the people like Demetrius and the other silversmiths who made these little statues. You can almost imagine them selling them at the temple gates and selling them at the theater and selling them at these places. Get your free Artemis, or not free, of course, it's made out of silver. That would have been nice. Get your Artemis replica right here. They made a living there. Their living was at stake by the presence of these Christians who say a God is not made by hand. And so that brings us to the first point, the attack on the idols. Just the first couple of verses here that do, that mention Paul and him going to Rome. They, Paul's intent obviously is to get to Rome. Rome has a very significant strategic importance for Christian ministry. Rome was the hub of the world, much less the hub of this particular area. It was one of the most important cities in the world. You can even argue that one of Luke's purposes in writing this story and the reason that he included this story was to show that Christians aren't any real danger to society at all, particularly the Roman government. They didn't need the Roman government against them at this time. And so maybe 
he was writing this to show, look, Christians weren't the ones that really caused this. They were just doing their own thing. They ended the riot peacefully, and the riot was probably a little more dangerous even than Luke lets on. But, of course, that didn't stop Rome from later killing lots of Christians. And that brings us to verse 23. Let me read forward. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And the way is just a, another way of talking about Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods, that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only to this trade of ours, but it may, of ours, may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of, God, of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So Demetrius kind of lays it out. He brings together his guild of craftsmen. He may have been some sort of guild leader among them and brings together all the silversmiths and others in the area and lets them know they've come to realize the presence of the Christians in town is going to hurt his business. It's fascinating that he says in even all of Asia, just a reminder, Asia was the westernmost portion of Turkey at this time, not the giant continent that it is today, but still a large region of the known world is starting to come to Christianity, and it's starting to hurt the business of these idol makers. Pretty interesting stuff. Why is it going to do that? What are they preaching that is causing this to occur? Well, Demetrius lays it out. He says that gods made with hands are not gods at all. He pretty much summarizes their text or their their message, right? Sounds like the early Christians are reading from their Old Testaments, like Jeremiah 10 from our call to worship today. Psalm 115 is another great text to look at that deals with this, this same idea that these idols that we make are not gods at all. They're just decorations. They have nothing to do with anything. They have no power. They're just a piece of metal or a piece of wood. Nothing. And he had the consequences for what was going on perfectly mapped out as well. If the people discovered that Artemis is not really who she says he is, she is and who we say she is, and she's really just an expensive doorstopper, then our gig is up. We're not going to make any money anymore. Who wants a giant piece of silver that has no meaning? That's expensive just to bring silver into your home. Of course, if he knew the scriptures... Demetrius would know that this is a never-ending saga for man. Man will always make a new idol. And there will always need someone like Demetrius to craft the expensive representation of that idol. And so there's a few things for us to get here, I think. And first, the Christians at Ephesus, their, their refusal to make idolatry a thing. Their refusal of the idols in Ephesus was so persistent that it was having an impact. Consider Israel's history up to this point and consider Israel's history with the idols of the areas that they lived. They weren't exactly good at refusing them. That was pretty much what the entire Old Testament was about, right? Israel following after these other gods. Well, here the Christians are saying, 
No, these are not gods. This, brothers and sisters, should convict us. If a pagan city like Ephesus could be affected by a church that was less than 10 years old, brand new converts, no history of Christianity at all, this entire area, which was completely and utterly sinful and pagan, was being affected by this new movement. Why can't a city like Murray, with hundreds of established churches and old Christian families, get rid of its false idols? Could be largely because we've allowed those idols to take center stage in our worship, in our churches, in our families. The gods that we could have easily given the boot, instead we've given a place of honor. We could go on, and I could just spend the next several hours talking about the idols that we worship. I'll give one, because I think it very much attributes to most of the problems that we have. And it's the approval of man. Seeking man's approval over God's approval, which is one in Jesus Christ. This is alive and well in churches today. Demetrius, even though he's not still with us, people like him are busy making Christless sermons, worship music. It doesn't help us worship any God. Just a show. Just think of all the different things that are going on that seek the approval of man. We want people to like us. We want people to want to be with us. So we're going to seek their approval rather than the God of the Scriptures. Unless we think that we are in the clear as a Reformed church. Well, Reformed churches don't do those kinds of things. Rather than approval of man that we seek, we have our own self-righteousness to keep us warm at night. So at one end of the spectrum, you have a complete capitulation to this culture. And on the other end, we're in danger, brothers and sisters, of shutting our doors to it. If you think I'm being a bit harsh, it's because there's a lot at stake here. Are we acting in such a way that the false gods of our world feel threatened? Or do they feel welcome and cozy? Another thing, the statement that Demetrius makes concerning his idols, and I think we should grab a hold of this, that gods are made with, that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Why did this threaten him so much? Because he knew it was true. Because he knew it was true. And if the truth gets uncovered, then he is exposed. Not only as someone who's making meaningless things, and he realizes that his wealth may come and go, and that's fine. Not only is that, but he realizes that if Artemis is not real, and this creator that the Christians worship is, then I, Demetrius, am in trouble. And if that is true, and we don't believe in the creator God, then each one of us, too, is in trouble. And again, this goes back to Romans 1, does it not? They know their Creator, but what do they do? They exchange the truth about their Creator for a lie, and they worship the created thing rather than the Creator. They worship a God made with their hands rather than the God who formed them in their mother's womb. Don't miss this. The rebellion here is not about money. It's not about Artemis being dethroned. It's rebellion that is ingrained in the very nature of each one of us. It isn't something that they just got mad about 
but it has to do with a war that they are in with their creator. They are defending a piece of metal against the Almighty. What is it that we are defending against the actual God who needs no defense? That brings us to the next point, the defense of those idols. So Demetrius gets all of these craftsmen together and he gets them all roused up. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So he rallied these craftsmen together who then turned and rallied the people of Ephesus together with this great rallying cry, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. These are people who traveled with Paul. Get the, get the uh, mix that's going on here. They were filled with confusion, so they did something together. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The word here, word for confusion, is actually, this is the only time it's found in the New Testament. And it means disturbance. It, it's more like something that would lead to a riot. And that's exactly what's going on. It reminds me of another passage that we've looked at here in worship before, First Samuel chapter five, when the ark of God was put next to the put next to the Philistine god Dagon, and when they came to the temple the next morning, the priests of Dagon they saw that Dagon was on the ground shattered to pieces. And what are we told happened as a result of seeing their god shattered to pieces in the floor? First Samuel 5 verse 11 tells us that there was a deadly panic in the city because the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. That's exactly what's going on here in the city of Ephesus, is it not? This confusion that is leading them to all crush together into this theater. Again, two of Paul's companions were drugged into the theater they, they knew Paul was a leader. They, these are the people that are with him. Let's bring them in. This theater is a pretty spectacular looking place. I encourage you to look at pictures of it. It's still in existence today. They drug these two men in. Naturally, Paul being who he was, he was not really afraid of anything, at least that I can find in the scriptures, except for the Lord. And he runs in and he, or he wants to run in, but they, uh, they say, no, you don't need to do that. He, uh, they, they protect him. And verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not even know why they were there. They were there. They had no idea. They were just yelling. It's a loud mass of people being loud and mad. Most of them had no idea. Why they were there, why they were mad, they were just loud and mad. It's a perfect example of what's called the mob mentality. They're easily persuaded to act violently, even though they weren't really passionate about the thing that they were acting violently against. They're just giving them an excuse to act like crazy people. Does this sound familiar at all? Have you watched the news? A Jewish man named Alexander attempted to calm them down. We don't know what his persuasion was. Maybe he was Jewish or maybe he was a Christian Jew. Whatever the case, he, he gets up and 
motions to the crowd like, okay, I'm ready to give a defense. And they weren't having it. For two hours, they shouted the same thing. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I've tried over the years of reading this passage to imagine this, but I just can't. I can't even hardly watch a movie that's two hours long. Shouting the same thing over and over again for two hours. It's just an angry mob. There's no thought at all involved here. It's just acting without thinking. I watched a video of people beating on the doors of the Senate chamber this uh, when, a couple weeks ago when Judge Kavanaugh was confirmed. They were shouting and beating on the door and wailing and trying to pry the doors open. And of course the cameras were watching willingly. What would they have done if they ever got into the Senate chambers? And what, what was going to happen if these people had got in there? And what were they thinking? They, they weren't. And again, whatever you, I'm not making a statement about Judge Kavanaugh whatsoever. Trust me, I'm not making a political claim here. Whatever you think about that, it's sad to see people defend their false gods so shamelessly. And of course, the same can be said of the other side who look at this man, this Judge Kavanaugh, as a perfect example of virtue. It'd be morally wrong to question him. Defending him so blindly, the same can be said. The American political climate right now is a perfect picture of what we see right there in the theater in Ephesus. Mob mentality. Blind defense of their gods that cannot speak for themselves. All the while, the true God of the Bible needs no defense and continues to reign from His throne. And so an important thing for us, this should really focus us on what's really important. Among those in the theater shouting without thinking because their ideologies were at risk, are we among those who were in that theater that day shouting because the things that are defenseless are at risk? Or are we thoughtfully and carefully defending the important things that really don't need a defense at all? And before we start deciding what's important, because then we'll quickly, again, we'll just tear down one God and make another one. Before we start doing that, we need to look at what people like Paul, the apostle, focused on. Just read through the New Testament. What was his focus? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Loving your neighbor as yourself and treating people like we ought to treat them. Seeing the kingdom of God grow and the glory of God be put forth. Those are important things are what we're following and what we are defending, are they represented by those or is it some other far-flung thing that will soon disintegrate, that will soon go away, that will be here today and be gone tomorrow? That brings me to the next point, the destruction of our idols. Verses 35 through 41, I'll just quickly summarize them. You have this city clerk who stands up City clerk probably would have been something like a mayor, so he would have been important and recognizable. He says, listen, these men and women that you've, or these two men that you've dragged in here and this Christianity that you are representing has really done nothing wrong. If they have, go through the proper channels. They'll be found out. He was saying, look, let's just have justice prevail here. 
That's pretty rare. Basically, he's saying that Christians have done nothing wrong. Even though they have stood against the idols, like Artemis, they have done nothing sacrilegious, is his word, or blasphemous. These two words are interesting. The word sacrilegious here is the Greek word that means temple robbing, literally. Christians have stood against Artemis. They say that a God made with hands is no God at all, but they haven't stolen anything. They haven't done anything like that. They haven't went into the temple of Artemis and burned it down or anything crazy like that. They also haven't blasphemed those gods. They haven't profaned them in any way. Something completely different than saying that's no God at all. They're just against the worship of Artemis. Consider this a moment when you think of the idols of this culture. And again, we live in a day that maybe there are people that have little silver idols in their house, but it's not normal. Most people have these other idols that they've constructed that are inside their hearts that they worship and that they bow to and that they would do anything for. And you think of the idols of our culture, approval and money and fame and all of these different things, think of them. Would our pagan friends and neighbors who don't worship the true God, would they call us as Christians, as their friends, as their neighbors, as their family members, would they call us temple robbers and blasphemers of the things that they hold dear? Or do we handle our objections with grace and understanding? When we see a friend or a family member crash and burn because of one of the idols of their heart, and inevitably we see this sort of thing all the time, we see it in our own lives, do we not? The things that we chase after that are not of God, we see them bring heartache to us. We see this happen to our friends and our family members. Do we throw gasoline on the fire? Or do we hold them by the hand and love them during those times? Do we point our fingers... Or do we cry with them? Yesterday, I had the, the honor of officiating a wedding for a childhood friend. We grew up together. He was actually my brother's best friend, but he was over at my house just basically all the time. We went fishing and hunting together. We spent a whole lot of time together. He's a divorced man in his late 30s, not a believer, probably even an atheist at this point in his life. Married a girl who he's been living with for a few years. She's also an atheist. They asked me to officiate their service and specifically asked for it to be non-religious. Now, I could have said, no way. And here's why. And went on a laundry list for them about all the things that were wrong with their life and their relationships and their belief in God. I could have burned their idols down. And I could have given them the truth of God's hatred for their sin. Instead, I officiated their wedding. I pronounced them man and wife. Why? Because marriage is a good gift from a good God to all of His creation, not just those in His church. I thought I was giving them something good, and it was a great time. These are, there are things to take a stand on, absolutely, brothers and sisters. And don't hear me say that. 
but we must be careful that the things that we are taking a stand on aren't our own carefully crafted idols that we have made and that we are defending. We should love the sinner. We should hate our own sin. Our Lord Jesus Christ loved the sinner, did he not? Just read the Gospels. He loved them. That's who he was with. He was the only one that wasn't one, so of course he loved them. He had no sin of his own to hate because he was perfect. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of ourselves that we carefully construct, but his righteousness. Since I stand upon the righteousness of Christ, I am free to love my neighbor more than I love myself. Absolutely free to do that. In fact, my love of my neighbor shows me more and more how to deny myself and how to serve others in the midst of that. When we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died even while we were the riotous people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And his death purchased forgiveness for my sins. And his resurrection defeated the death that I would have readily clung on to like a little silver idol. I would have hung on to that death, but he changed my heart. And showed me what life is. So in conclusion. As we consider this text. Examine your own hearts. In this. What idols are we holding on to. Such that would cause us to shout. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. And of course we would just insert our own. Great is my own goodness. Look at me. Look how good I am. And we would do that for two hours. We probably have. And if you say none, I don't have those sorts of things. And you need to pray that the Spirit would expose the wickedness that lies in your own heart. As our sins are exposed more and more, we'll be able to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, minds, and our strength. And we'll be able to do as we're called and love our neighbors as ourselves. Call upon the Lord. That he would destroy the idols of your hearts. That we would be able to glorify him more. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we come to you on our best days as former idolaters. Most of the time we come to you with idols in our hands. And so Lord, help us more and more to cast those down to bow the knee to the one true God who is all-powerful, yet who is all-merciful to his people. Lord, help us to serve you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.